You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. As part of Talking Taiwan's election tour, I spoke with Courtney Donovan Smith a week after Taiwan's presidential and legislative elections. Lai Qingde of the Democratic Progressive Party was elected president with 40.05% of the vote. Ho Yui, the Kuomintang's presidential candidate, got 33.49% of the vote, and Ko Wenzhe of the Taiwan People's Party got 26.46%. It was the first time in Taiwan's history that any political party has been elected for three consecutive four-year terms in office. The DPP won an unprecedented third presidential term, but lost its majority in the legislature. We talked about how ballot counting in Taiwan is highly transparent, and also about how the Taiwan People's Party could have a crucial role in the legislature, and if the TPP will suffer the same fate as Taiwan's other third parties. All right, so I'm in Taipei, and Corey Donovan-Smith is in Taichung. Welcome back on Talking Taiwan. It's great to be back. And so it's been actually exactly a week since the election, right? Yeah. It was very interesting for me to be here um, for this particular election because I remember past elections, right? Um, There was a lot more contention when... There was the assassination attempt on Chen Suikbei on the week and uh, Net Lu on the eve of the election, and then that election was contested. And there was a lot of protests and ca- calls for recounting the ballots. This time, it w- it seemed very you know very peaceful. The results were announced; everyone accepted it. It was pretty peaceful. The DPP was elected for the third term in a row, so I think it's a sign of Taiwan's democracy maturing. What are your thoughts on how you've seen Taiwan's democracy evolve over the time that you've been here? Uh, Any election that does not feature an assassination attempt is better than one that does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, this was a peaceful election. The the results were not contested. Um, There were some people in the Koenja supporters the so-called little grass supporters um, that tried to suggest that, you know, that this election was stolen or something along these lines. Mm-hmm. And Ke came out and he said, there's no way that, you know, outside, I forget his exact wording, but essentially it was outside of some very small isolated incidents. It's just too mm-hmm. hard to rig an election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, and, and he was absolutely correct. I mean, you know, for, for there to be wide scale fraud here, would be extremely difficult to orchestrate. So um, I don't I don't see that as having happened. Um, I do think that this election was quite an interesting one, um, and two mega trends collided in in this election. And mm-hmm. those were traditionally here each party's had two terms in office, and then the other party was voted in, and of course lie won a third term for the DPP. Mm-hmm which is unprecedented. But on the other hand, there post the Sunflower Movement, there's been a shift more toward Taiwanese identity, which favors the DPP over the KMT. 
So those two things collided, and then Koenja came in and further muddied up the picture. Um, but I mean, this was really a roller coaster ride of an election. You have, you know, Terry Go was involved for a long time there. The spectacular collapse of the of uh, uh, the attempted unity ticket, uh, which was very public, and you know, so there was a lot of high drama in this in this one. Um, not as much drama, obviously, as, as you know, the year with the uh, the assassination attempt. Um, yeah. And I would say there was less drama than in 1996 or 2000 as well. Um, obviously, in 1996, China was shooting missiles off the coast. Um, yeah. And 2000 was the first change of power. And a lot of, uh, after the election, a lot of KMT members, I shouldn't say a lot necessarily, but hundreds or thousands came out on stage to protest, you know, were protesting the KMT losing power. And there was actually, if, if you remember Chen Suibian when he first came in at the time, um, the first premier that he appointed was a military, uh, a military guy who was not DPP. And the theory behind that is he was probably still very concerned about a potential military coup uh, mm. by KMT supporters within within mm. the military. Um, you'll also remember when Li Denghui first took office, he brought in, again, a military man because there was opposition to Li Denghui, who ascended the presidency because he was the vice president after Jiang Jingguo died. He appointed Hao Puotsun to be uh, his first premier. And there are rumors that, you know, for similar sor sorts of reasons. So, you know, you know so yeah, th this, this latest one I think was very interesting and it was, a, you know, there was lots of drama to it, but it, it was not as existentially scary as those earlier ones. Yeah. And I also wanted to talk about like how you said that, uh, Coenza came out and said it very hard to steal the election. So for people that don't know, let's talk a little bit about how actually the ballot counting is done because we were talking about that. And it's very, very transparent, uh, the way that's done here in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think the system here is really, really well done, really well thought out. Um, I think a lot of other democracies could learn from this, the system here, um, especially the United States. Um but the way it's done here is there's a lot of uh, voter uh, voting stations all across Taiwan. So they're very accessible. Um, they're run by a combination of professionals. And, of course, there's some volunteers. Representatives from all political parties are welcome. When they do the vote counting, um, it's open to the public. So the public, the press, anyone is allowed to show up. And then what they do is when they bring out the, the ballots, is they reach in, they pull out the ballot, they hold it up high over their head so that it's visible to everyone, and then they in do the what's room, called right. singing the vote. So it, they call out the name of who the vote is for. Um, and then on a big board, again, very transparent, everybody can see it, a tick mark is added to the, you know, the Jung character. Um, mm -hmm. you can, you can do your own tally if you want, you can see the ballots because they're large. Um, so this is an extremely hard process to, to rig. Um, 
And it's also very efficient uh, considering because usually only around something like 900, 1,000 votes at each one of these voting stations. Um, mm-hmm. And so what they do is they go through it. The polls closed at four. By about eight o'clock, the vast majority of the um, uh, vote count was in. You know, there were a few few districts and legislative races where it took a little bit longer. But by nine o'clock, all, almost all of the, uh, all, you know, all, all of them had you know, had a well over ninety percent. Uh, you know, the vote had been counted. It was obvious who the next president was going to be. Um, and so that's only a four hour gap. And then there was about a five or six hour gap when there's just a few straggling um, polling stations, you know, that took a little bit longer. But it, again, this is a, a remarkable, it's transparent, it's fairly efficient um, compared to, say, the United States, where you might end up waiting forever to get your, your vote count. And so I, I think it, Taiwan's voting system has a lot to be commended for. It, and I think uh, I really do wish that countries like the United States would take a look at it. And it was on a Saturday. Is it is it usual that they plan like that election day is on a weekend? Yeah, it makes it easier for voters to attend. Yeah. And now keep in mind, Taiwanese have to go to where their household registration is. So that yeah. means a lot of them have to, you know, they have to travel. So, for example, um, like we both, you know, you know, Sean Sue, of course, who you interviewed on yes. Uh, yes. election day. And yes. so he lives in Taipei, but his household registration is in Kaohsiung. Right. So, you know, he went to Kaohsiung to, to vote, um, you know, and so you, you, you know, the same thing, I believe your household registration is in Kaohsiung as well. Yes. Yes. I also voted in Kaohsiung. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're also another perfect example. Um, now there's, I think two reasons that this is done. Um, there has been some talk of allowing people domestically to vote in one place, even if their household registration is in another mm-hmm. The technical problem with this is because of the way that the voting is done here, you have an idea because of the household registration, ballpark, depending on voter turnout, you have a a pretty rough idea of how many votes should be coming in. And, but if you're, if you, you're, if you don't know who's going to be coming in and voting because you don't know the household registration for that geographic area, there could be more disputes. Now, there's been very, there has been some talk of letting voters based outside of Taiwan uh, vote by, you know, some kind of mail-in ballot. But the problem is, is particularly in China, you know, the the United Front there, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, they can just say to Taiwanese, you know, most of them are studying or doing business. They can say, well, if you don't vote for our preferred candidate, you could lose your visa will mm-hmm. find your company. You know, mm-hmm. they have so many right, points right. of leverage over the Taiwanese residing there, and there's hundreds of thousands of them. So, I mean, what they did is they they provide, like, cheap tickets as kind of a bribe to get Taiwanese to go back to Taiwan and vote, but they have mm-hmm. little leverage over actually who they vote for once they get here. Sure. Um, and it's not huge numbers. Now, it's true that, you know, generally... Taiwanese doing business in China, it's presumed that they lean more toward the KMT because the KMT is more China friendly and it's in their interests business wise, but not all of them by any means. You know, I've, I've met a fair number of what are called the Tai, the Taishang 
Taiwanese businessmen right. doing, you know, in based in China who are DPP supporters. The other thing that I've heard people talk about is the TPP as a third party, right? And historically, it seems that the third, a lot of the third parties, like the, uh, was it the, the People First Party? They didn't last, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Do you think the Taiwan People's Party is going to last? And what do they need to do in order to stay relevant and continue to gain momentum? That's actually what I'm in the middle of writing a column on right now is that exact okay. topic. So there have been historically registered with the government, it was 386 parties or something like that registered, thereabouts. Um, 92 parties are currently active. Um, but really the two big parties are the KMT, which traces its origins to anti-Manchu groupings during the Qing dynasty. They wanted to restore ethnic Han Chinese rule um, and expel the you know Manchurian barbarians um, running the Qing dynasty. And so they, they're over 100 years old, no matter how you count it. Um, um, the uh, DPP was informally founded in 1986 and then legally registered in 1989, if I recall. Um, and ever since, those two parties have dominated. Now, the there have been, uh, over the years, four parties that did actually get some significant representation in the legislature. Mm -hmm. There are a few mm -hmm. other little parties that, that managed to get a seat here or there, but there are four that actually had some success. The first one is the new party. Um, the new party appeared in the mid-1990s, and... They broke away from the KMT. Now, at the time, uh, they were considered a sort of a cleaner, less corrupt version of the KMT. And so they actually grew in popularity. But by the late 1990s, they were losing a lot of support because they had moved much closer ideologically toward China. Uh, they became just too hard line for the, uh, for the broader public. Um, so they went from being the, the third force to just you know, a few seats. And then now they've got, I think, one council seat somewhere, <laughs> probably in Jinmen or Mazu um, or Taipei. But um, so, you know, so they basically fell apart on infighting and becoming too ideologically hardline. In the aftermath of the 2000 election, two other parties broke away from the KMT. Um, and uh, so they were, they were also splinter parties uh, from the KMT. One was the People's First Party. Now, they actually, at one point in the legislature, the legislature used to be bigger, um, but the PFP had 48 seats compared to, I think it was 64 for the KMT. Thereabouts, I might have gotten the numbers not exactly right, but it, you, you kind of get the proportionality there, right? Right. Um, the PFP was about two thirds as big as the KMT in that legislature. Now, that party was formed around uh, James Song, Song Zuyu, who he was passed over to run for president in in the 2000 election. 
by the KMT. And I think there's a whole story behind that. So James Sung was passed over by then party chair Li Donghui, who decided not to run again. So the KMT went behind Lian Chan, who had about the charisma of toothpaste. So James Sung got all upset because he was a very popular politician and ran as an independent. And he came in second. He had a pretty strong showing. He beat out the KMT, KMT's Lian Zhan, um, and nearly pipped a Chen Suibian of the DPP, almost. But, you know, he needed a political organization behind him and wanted to have some power in the legislature. So he formed the People's First Party, and uh, a lot of people defected from the KMT. Their problem, um, and how they ended up fading, was in the 2004 presidential election, James Sung very reluctantly agreed to be the vice presidential candidate on a joint Lianjian James Sung ticket. And it became harder and harder because in the legislature, the KMT and the, and the PFP and what was left of the new party all voted together as a block for the most part. So it was kind of hard to distinguish between the PFP and the KMT. Then a second big blow to them was that there was a constitutional uh, amendments added in 2005, uh, which affected the 2008 election. And it cut the number of seats about in half in the legislature. And most importantly, it made... 73 of the seats, uh, were, um, were district ones, which um, were, they changed the system to first past the post. So a single member first past the post district, whereas previously you had multi-member districts. So you'd have several people representing your di- district so other parties could sometimes win, like city councils are still done today. Um, so this made it harder for smaller parties. Could you explain the first past the post concept? It means, uh, whichever one single person has the most votes wins. And it's only that person representing that district. So, um, yeah. So whereas before it would be like the top three in the district vote getters would represent the district, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So it was easier for a smaller party to end up being the third or fourth, depending on the size of the district. Um, So what ended up happening is, is that the better funded, better resourced KMT basically just reabsorbed or absorbed what was left of of the PFP. And they now have maybe two or three council seats around the country. I mean, they're, they're a shadow of what they used to be. Uh, they did actually still win uh, three seats in 2016, but that was the last of uh, in the legislature. But that was that's uh, they they failed in 2020, and now they get less than one percent of the vote. The other one uh, is the um, Taiwan Solidarity Union, which was a group of pro-independence KMT members, which is kind of an interesting mm. line. Um, and then they took Li Donghui as their spiritual father. And this 
and so, but they voted with the DPP and they had kind of the same problem of differentiating themselves from the DPP as the PFP did with the KMT. Um, now, but incidentally, it was after the 2000 election and in the 2001 legislative election there where you had these two blocks. That's the origin of the terms pan green based on the color of the DPP flag, which was the DPP and the Taiwan Solidarity Union. And the pan blues based on the color of the KMT flag, which is the KMT, the PFP, um, and the NP. And so, because the, those terms didn't, didn't, uh, didn't exist before that time. So there's a little historical note. The last party that had some success was the new power party, um, which was founded by some fairly well-known people in the wake of the sunflower movement. The problem, one, is a string of corruption scandals, which is a bad look for this new, fresh party. The other, including their party chair, by the way, which is pretty awful. Uh, and then there's also a lot of personality clashes within the party. And so there was, in particular, there was two mass waves of defections by most of their best and best known uh, politicians. So, you know, again, they, you know, they, they managed to, they won five seats in 2016, three seats in 2020, but this time they just didn't make the cut. They, they got no seats at all. And now for a short break, Talking Taiwan is the longest running Taiwan related podcast and currently the only independently produced Taiwanese American English language podcast in the world that covers political news related to Taiwan. And we're getting ready to take this show on the road back to Taiwan in January to cover Taiwan's presidential election and to interview some special guests while we're there. We're calling it the Talking Taiwan Election Tour, and we'd like to thank all of our generous donors and supporters who have helped us to reach our first fundraising goal of $5,000, which will be doubled to $10,000 by Patrick Huang. This means that we are nearly halfway to reaching our overall fundraising goal of $25,000. We'll be working with seasoned political commentator Courtney Donovan-Smith, who will be sharing his analysis of Taiwan's presidential candidate debate. In fact, that will be our first episode of the new year. In January, we'll be headed to Taiwan, where we'll be meeting with Courtney in Taichung for some pre-election coverage. And then, of course, there will also be a post-election discussion episode. There's still time for you to support the Talking Taiwan election tour. Help us get the show on the road by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign or at TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support. We thank you for your support. You make what we do possible. Now, back to the episode. So, I guess you're getting back to your question, the Taiwan People's Party. They have a few, you know, they have to avoid all the pitfalls that brought down the other parties. Um, and they have to try and avoid being too reliant on Ko Wenzhe as an individual personality, like the People's First Party with James Sung. But they do have a, a few advantages that might, and I say might, see them through. One is they got enough votes in this election to get a pretty significant amount in government subsidies going forward. Not as much as the KMT or the DPP, you know, but they got about roughly two thirds what those parties got. So they've got a lot of money to play with now. Not as much as the other two big parties, but 
still a fair bit. The other thing is that his party does have some stars who have stayed with the party for a while now. Importantly, two of them were homegrown, Tsaibiru and Ang Gao. Now, both of those, there's some worries here. Uh, Ang Gao is mired. uh, She's on trial, uh, accused of uh, pocketing um, money that was supposed to go to paying assistance and some other things. Um, And Tsaibiru, there's some signs of her being unhappy with the party. Um, I don't know how, how serious that is. But she just made some comments the other, uh, just yesterday, I think it was, that kind of slammed Coencho, which is, anyway. Then you've got um, uh, Huang Guochang, who, ju- who left the New Power Party, which he co-founded, uh, but he's quite well known. Uh, and you've also got um, uh, Vivian Huang, Huang Shanshan, who used to be in the new party, the pre- People's First Party, but has joined the uh, the Taiwan People's Party. So those are your big, your better better known uh, figures within the party, and you know, so they've got the, a core or a nucleus of a team. They also did something that's very interesting: is that they got there because they won on the party list, and that's. That's not a di- district constituency. This is where you vote for a party. And there's 34 of those seats in the legislature. Eight of them were apportioned to the Taiwan People's Party. All eight of those legislators have signed a pledge that after two years, they will step down. And the next eight people on the TPP's party list will then step up to fill their positions. Now, what this does is first of all it's an it's a novel approach you, you know i haven't seen a whole party do this on mass um but the other thing is is it frees up some of their best known politicians to then run in the 2026 local elections so for you know mayor or county commissioner or those kind of things now the party and this is also interesting which sh- would strongly suggest that that i'm right about this strategy is that each of their eight party list um, uh, uh, legislators are being assigned an area of the country where they are sort of responsible for liaising with the public in in those particular areas. So, for example, Huang Guochang just o- opened a service office in Banqiao um, in uh, New Taipei City. And he explicitly said that, yes, New Taipei was his area of responsibility. Um, when asked, is he going to run for new Taipei mayor? He said it's still too early yet, but he definitely didn't rule it out. And I would, I would, I'd put odds are reasonably high that he might do that. So the TPP is doing some things that I think are different than the other smaller parties in the past. Mm-hmm. They're doing some things which I think are very smart strategically. But again, there's still a lot of pitfalls ahead of them, though they do have another advantage is that because they're not, not a splinter party. They can't be reabsorbed into another party. And because they take out stances which are different than the KMT and the DPP on certain issues, and they branded themselves differently, it would be very hard for them to be called the little green party or the little blue party. 
Um, and they have another advantage, and that is that they are very popular with young people, including with high school students. However, that so the, the bonus there is that these new voters will be coming into, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to vote in the next election or the one after. The problem is, is that they're demographically much smaller than older groups. And the second problem is younger voters potentially could be more fickle. If you think about what you believed in when you were 16, and by the time you get to, you know, 25, you're you're not necessarily going to be thinking the same way. Um, Right. So whether they can, you know, the the party can keep their support is another matter. So, you know, how it's going to play out, I couldn't say. They've got some advantages the other small parties didn't. But all the challenges, you know, of us facing a small party are out, or, you know, they, they still have to overcome them. So we've talked a lot about Taiwan People's Party, and we, but also I heard that there are some people that were calling perhaps for uh, a recall of Hoyoi because he was the mayor of New Taipei City for only a couple months before he Run as the presidential candidate, and this was being compared to what happened with Han Guoyu in, in Kaohsiung, who did something similar, and he actually got recalled when he lost the election to uh, Tsai Ing-wen. Have you heard about this, and do you know what's mm-hmm. going on with that? Um, uh, something like eighty thousand people or something have signed on to something online, um, which by itself doesn't mean very much. Uh, what really right. has to happen is is that y- you've got to go through two rounds of collecting signatures, mm-hmm. which is logistically complicated. Um, and you know, so you have to get through you have to go through these two processes. Then a vote has to be organized for the general public, you know, and then that has to pass. So there's a lot of barriers here to this actually happening. My suspicion is it won't go all the way through to the end because there's a few big differences between Ho Yui uh, and Daniel Han Guoyu. Han Guoyu had only been in office a few months and then he started running for president, which is a really bad look. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Ho Yui was first the, the vice mayor and then he served a full term as mayor. And then a few months into his second term, he did run for president, taking a leave of absence. But he, you know, he's made the argument that he's already put in quite a few years of service with the new Taipei city government. You know, this wasn't just I'm elected and then I ran off immediately. So um, the other thing is, is that Hang Yu was he, he was a very polarizing figure. People either absolutely loved him. Or absolutely hated him. And I don't see uh, Hoyoi being that hated. You know, that mm-hmm. people are going to put in all the effort, all the expense to do all these signature drives and then turn out in a high enough turnout in a by election to throw him out. I, I don't see this, this, mm-hmm. I don't see this coming. I think it's unlikely to come to fruition. And even if it does, I don't, I don't know if the new Taipei City voters would vote by a high enough margin or turn out even in a high enough 
know that the turn turnout would even be high enough to, to oust him. So it's possible, but I, I don't. I, I'd be surprised if it if it actually happens. Right, and a lot of people were critical of how Han Goyu was his performance for the short time that he was the Gaoshan mayor. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what people's general opinion is of Hoyui's performance as well, the new Taipei. There, there, there are a few instances where people were upset, like the Anun case where a child died um, right. because emergency services took, I don't know, it was like 70 minutes or 80 minutes or something mm-hmm. like that to show up. And then Ho defended the, the city officials, which is kind of in character because he was originally a policeman. So he kind of stood by the first responders and was not very transparent. But overall, I think that, you know, he was reelected by a very large margin, which I think really, right. you know, I think that sort of says, says it all. I mean, if a politician's right. run a place for four years and wins reelection by a huge margin, I think right. you have to trust that the voters know what they're talking about. So, mm-hmm. so I think that suggests he did a pretty good job. What do you think that the results tell us about how people feel about the DPP? Because it's kind of mixed, right? It is historical that the party has been elected for the third term, but then they lost legislator, right? They lost the majority in the legislature. So what do you think that says about how people feel about the DPP? There's definitely a lot of voter fatigue after eight years of the Tsai administration. I suspect that there was a fair number of people who voted for lie and were not terribly excited about it, um, that they were more concerned about um, sovereignty issues and protecting Taiwan. Um, you know, Generally speaking, the Thai administration's uh, foreign policy and handling of China has been popular, uh, but domestically, not popular <laughs> on domestic issues. Um, so, you know, I think that there is, you know, I'd be willing to bet that there are a fair number of voters who were voting for Lai because of the foreign policy and because of China and sovereignty and national defense and felt that uh, he could be trusted. Um, and so, you know, okay, we'll give him four more years, but then, but they didn't trust the KMT, um, or Hoyoe with national sovereignty. And there are a lot of people, I think, who found Ke to be too erratic um, and shifting in his stances um, and the very public falling apart of the unity things, which made him not look very reliable. <laughs> um, um, and so I think that what, what it kind of came down to is that um, the public sort of overall kind of rebuked the DPP. Uh, by depriving them of the majority in the legislature, you know that was kind of the, a rebuke for you, you know for the the performance of the party domestically. I think, but they rewarded the the DPP for their you know foreign policy, et cetera, and then they made sure that in terms of domestic policy, there was oversight in the legislature. So, you know, the, the DPP appears to be trusted to handle some things, but not others. Um, but you'll notice that there was no real enthusiasm for the KMT either. You know, the only candidates who really got much enthusiasm 
was Ke Wenzhe, but he basically got almost no votes of anyone over 50. You know, they just didn't trust him and didn't like him. And so he got a lot of very young, enthusiastic people, but they just demographically weren't big enough to swing it for him. Right. But they were enthusiastic um, and cute. Mm -hmm. They had these, they called them little grass, and they'd uh-huh. wear these like dealy boppers on their heads with a little sprout coming out. It was just adorable. Um, I thought it was very cute. Courtney also talked about how some have conjectured the results of the election would have been different if it were a two-party race instead of a three-party race. Well, I mean, it's uh, it, what's interesting is that, I mean, there's a lot of people on the KMT side are suggesting that if this wasn't a three-way race, uh, they they would have won. Now, that may or may not be the case. We actually don't know. And the reason I say this is that a lot of the people who voted for the TPP might not have voted for the KMT. I saw one, one poll that suggested as much as 57% of KU supporters, if they couldn't vote for the TPP, they'd vote for the DPP over the KMT. Then I saw some other indications which suggested that it might be a little bit of the reverse. I think probably uh, Lai would have won this anyway, but it would have been much tighter. Um, but we have no no way of knowing. I mean, obviously, that's a counterfactual. Yeah, yeah. I have talked to a lot of people, and there was the discussion was like, what if they did have the unity ticket, right? What would happen? It's also interesting what happened in the legislative year, right? So the DPP got 51 seats, the KMT got uh, 52, and then the Town People's Party got eight. So they're going to be the tiebreakers. So they may actually be able to sway the decision of who's going to be the speaker in the legislative union, right? Yeah. So right now, um, there's a ton of speculation on what's going to happen with the legislative speaker and deputy speaker positions. And there's a whole lot of rumors and uh, rumored infighting in the KMT side on this. So the KMT has got, the, you need 57 for a majority. The KMT has got 52, but there are two independents who will almost certainly caucus with them. So that gives them 54. So they're three votes short. Then you've got, you've got the DPP, which is six votes short, and you've got the, the TPP, which has got eight votes. So basically, they're the tiebreaker. So each side is going to try and offer something. Now, the TPP has asked the other parties to respond to four specific, they have four proposals for reform, uh, and they've asked the other two parties to agree to those. Neither of the other parties has done so, so far, although they may yet might. Now, the DPP has, or, you know, William Lai or Lai Qingde, he has kind of dangled the possibility of allowing people from other parties into the government, which, of course, leaves the door open to bringing in somebody from the TPP into the government. Now, the advantage here for the TPP is that that means that they get a little bit more of a seat uh, at the table of power, and this could help them influence legislation and also because the way it works here generally is a lot of the legislation actually doesn't come from the legislature some of it does but a lot of it actually comes out of the executive yuan and comes from from within there 
So this would mean the TPP could have something of a seat at the table, you know, on that end as well as in the legislature. So that would give them more access to power. On the other hand, the party has built its reputation on you know, oversight and not being DPP or KMT. So the other possibility uh, is that they don't support the DPP, um, you know, and they vote for the KMT. Now, there's also the possibility, you know, and then they just serve in an oversight role, but they don't actually really have much of a, uh, a role at the table on the executive side. Now, there are uh, t- t- several other considerations. One is that, you know, the, t- the TPP could make a strong arrangement with another party or a weak arrangement. And by that, I mean, for example, they, you know, they make a deal whereby they will support another party's speaker, but doesn't form a coalition with them in the legislature. In other words, they'll say, okay, in exchange for something, we will vote for your party's candidate for speaker and deputy speaker. And, you know, we get something in return, maybe some agreements for specific reforms or or something like that, which they're asking for. But going forward, they're not going to caucus together. They retain the right to oppose any legislation that comes through proposed by either side. And then, so that gives them that third independent role, which is kind of in line with their brand. Then if they form a strong coalition, again, then they're going to have more, uh, you know, more, they're going to have a bigger seat at the table. So, you know, they have to kind of think through all of these things. Now, there's a tiny chance that you could see, I consider it quite unlikely, but it's theoretically possible. You could actually see the DPP and KMT come together and form some kind of joint ticket. Courtney also talked about the Democratic Progressive Party's speaker candidate. It's clear Yoshi Quen wants to, and Tsai Chi Tang are the speaker and deputy speaker candidates. It's very, very clear. The messy part here is what's going on on the KMT side. Because Han Guoyu was put in at the number one position on the KMT party list. Right. That normally means that is the speaker candidate. However, he came out and picked uh, Johnny Jiang, a Taichung uh, lawmaker and former party chair, to be his deputy speaker candidate. However, there are some other people out there who are interested in vying for either the speaker or the deputy speaker position. The one that's getting all the attention is uh, Hualien lawmaker uh, Fu Quanxi who is openly unhappy that he is not on this ticket. Now, during the election, he had been going around like a previous speaker, uh, Wang Jinping. He was going out and going to all these different candidates, to legislative candidates, helping out their campaign with campaign goodies. And, you know, after the election, he sends them flowers and congratulations. And so he's been really working it hard to try and get himself on that ticket. However, he is known as the King of Hualien and has served several jail terms in the past, uh, including for corruption. He previously lost his party membership over that. He even served in the legislature from jail uh, for a while. The party finally welcomed him back, um, but he's not necessarily a very good look for the party for that speaker position. Now, 
there's been rumors that Han Guoyu, when he picked Johnny Jiang, he, he did not inform uh, Eric Ju, the party chair. He just went ahead and did it. Eric Ju denies that, says that's just rumors. Now, Fu Quanchi is trying to get Johnny Jiang kicked off. I mean, he outright wants to be uh, on that ticket. And he said, you know, Johnny Jiang can't do this because, you know, he's going to probably run for Taijung mayor in, 20, in 2026, which is actually quite, quite a, a strong possibility. Um, now, Johnny Jiang replied, you know, you can't think about elections all day and all night. You know, um, they use an expression to that effect. So there's a lot of horse trading going on not only just within the KMT caucus, but then, you know, once they've sorted that out, and Eric Ju says the party is behind Han Guoyu and Johnny Jiang, but then there's a lot of people in the press who are saying that, no, not the entire KMT caucus is not behind them. But we don't actually know how much of this is rumor and how much of it is true. So, you know, first the KMT has got to sort itself on their side, uh, who their, you know, who their candidates are. And then they have to pass that through their own caucus. And then they're going to have to do some horse trading with uh, other political parties. And the new legislature takes uh, office on February 1st. And so one of the first orders of business is going to have to be to choose a speaker and deputy speaker. Thank you so much for sharing your analysis of the recent presidential legislative election here in Taiwan. It's always great to be back, Felicia. I've been speaking with Courtney Donovan-Smith about Taiwan's January 13, 2024 presidential and legislative elections. So what are you waiting for? To support the Talking Taiwan election tour, visit TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support or share this episode with a friend. Now it's time for you to show us some love. Rate us on Spotify, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.